We are back with another episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I am Sean. And I'm Ed. And uh, we're doing some baseball. We are a baseball history podcast. Uh, each week, or each week, each Bi-weekly. episode, each episode we take turns uh, telling each other a story from baseball history. That is correct. Uh, we have a very, very special guest with us this week. That's right. Uh, JP, uh, say something. What's up, guys? JP from the West Coast. <laughs> yes, welcome to the show. <laughs> Coming to us from sunny and hot California. 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 Yes. It's an honor, guys. Thank you. It's very hot down here. Appreciate you guys having me on. Well, yes. we're happy to have yes, you. Yes, we're happy to have you. And we're going to plug some shit right now of yours. Of yours. You have a sweet band oh. called uh, Stray Rebel Bullet. Yep. And uh, Thank for, you. Uh, yeah, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Master. Fantastic. A master. That's what definitely what I call myself. To me, a to me, you're a master. Yeah. Anyway, uh, master of the white belts for sure. And, oh, absolutely. It, it, I'll put a new white belt in check. Fucking <laughs> right, man. And operations manager. Is that your title at the Warrior Room? Yes. Thank you very much. I am the operations manager at the Warrior Room. We do virtual uh, workouts and stuff like that. So it's perfect for your quarantine. I was gonna uh, say. Time. So if you're trying to stay in shape or get yourself in shape in these trying times, look up. Uh, JP on uh, the Warrior Room. Wow, thank you. Well, plugs right at the front of the episode. Yeah, I like it. What, what's your Twitter, JP? Oh, JP underscore SRB. All right, JP underscore SRB. Yeah. You can follow us at Sean and or at Doing Baseball, uh, and then at underscore Doing Baseball on Instagram. Uh, obviously, you're listening to us now. You can check us out on Spotify or on iTunes. Uh, give us a review. Five stars. Five stars all the time. So uh, uh, I, I got a question for you. So you're in the, JP, you're in the Orange County right now, correct? Right. And uh, originally grew up in Oakland, California? I grew up in Castro Valley, which is near Oakland. And then I spent some time living in Oakland. But yeah, I'm from the Bay Area. Okay, yeah. so uh, uh, what 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 is your team allegiance? Are you, are you an Angels fan? Yeah. Good question. You're an Angels fan? Uh, You're still Oakland fan? Do you have uh, So I'm one of those weirdos that likes both the A's and the Giants. Because you're wearing a Phillies hat. Uh, Well, he can wear whatever hat he wants. Wait, let the man talk. He he likes the A's and the Giants? (laughs) I do like the A's and the Giants. My first baseball game was a Giants game, though. It was the Giants versus the Phillies. Candlestick? Uh, I got Candlestick Park. I got Dale Murphy's autograph. Nice. Uh, he, He autographed my glove, and he was my favorite player. At that time, like, you, know, he, you know, he wasn't like an amazing, like a lot of people listening probably don't even remember remember Dale Murphy. I'm going to mention but, something uh, about Dale Murphy later on. Really? Oh. Yes. He didn't. Wow. wow. Yes. We did not discuss this. No, either. none of this was discussed. You're wearing a <laughs> Phillies hat. That comes into play. Dale Murphy. Fuck me. If you don't know the format, if you don't know the format of the podcast, that we take turns telling each other a story. So me and JP have no idea what Edzy is about to tell us. So that's di- right. Yeah. Didn't Dale Murphy coach for the Jays at one point too? I'm not familiar with that factor. Not, I don't know. But, uh, Maybe it was Ori. I don't know. You should look things up before you say them. Well, I'm asking a question. This is the point of a question, and we're, we're bantering right That's now. That's true. I'm sorry. Sorry for <laughs> jumping down play- your throat. <laughs> Playful conversation. I'm sorry, guys. Just asking, throwing yeah. something out there. But, I drank a bottle of wine last night. Give me a break. He I'm did. I'm on edge. 
It's my birthday. Do, uh, it is. Happy birthday, do, Edzie. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's right. Happy birthday, man. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Ed. You're tw- 20, 28. <laughs> no. 30, 32, man. 32. 32. Yeah. I knew it. It was my 32nd birthday. It was only half a minute. <laughs> it's almost over, man. Yeah. It's over now. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay. So uh, last time, Sean... You uh, told, are we going to start now? Should we start now? Yeah, I think we're okay. into this. Uh, so last time, Sean, you told me the story of uh, the Coastal Plain League. Uh, Jesse Cole and the man in the yellow hat. The banana Savannah. Yeah. Savannah Bananas. <laughs> Savannah Bananas, which was a great story, by the way. Uh-huh. Um, which is probably the most recent story that we've told within baseball history. I think you said the league started in 1997 or so. Yeah. And the bananas in 2016. So it was very recent history. Right. Right. So, um, in the spirit of competition, so there's no sports right now. Uh, this story begins March 21st, 2007. Wow. All right. Okay. Our story begins this time in New York city at the Waldorf Astoria hotel, a gathering of who's who is at the luxurious hotel in midtown Manhattan for the rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony of Atlanta Indie Rockers R.E.M. All right. I don't see how this is baseball related. I but... figured you would not, but <laughs> we'll, we'll get to it. Scott McAfee, the leader of bands The Young Fresh Fellows, The Minus Fives, and auxiliary player for R.E.M., began to chat with Steve Wynn, founder of The Dream Syndicate, about a project where a couple fans might find a way to pay homage to their favorite national pastime and maybe score some free baseball tickets in the process. The idea quickly evolved, and soon Linda Pittman was on the drums, having played in other projects with Wynn, and shortly thereafter, a couple other dudes from R.E.M., Peter Buck, and Mike Mills filled out the roster. Later that year, the new supergroup, The Baseball Project, headed into the studio to record their debut album, Volume 1, Frozen Ropes and Dying Quails. Amazing. Yes. That is a... That's yeah. <laughs> That's how it relates. Both Frozen Ropes and Dying Quails are also just those would be two great band names as well. Yes. <laughs> In 2010, the band wrote a song and recorded one each month as a real-time commentary on the baseball season for ESPN.com. The collection was released in 2011 as the Broadside Ballads. The second album from the Baseball Project, Volume Two, High and Inside, was released on March 1st, 2011. On Yep Rock Records. I just want to say, uh, high and inside is probably how most of the people we know have been spending this quarantine. Yes, yes. <laughs> the band followed nice. the record. Nice one. Yes. <laughs> the band followed the record's release with a tour covering the U.S. and appearances at spring training games in Arizona's Cactus League. So there's the free baseball tickets. There you go. Uh, their third album, Third, was released in 2014. So. Uh, I want to switch focus back to their first release because it has a particular song that caused me to focus on a particular story. So, so wait, is this the one that was throughout the season they recorded it? No, this was... They the, just, they just this did the was, first one. Yeah, yeah, this was their first album. So Swerve, you thought this was about a band. Uh-huh. It kind of is, but no, it's not. So uh, uh-huh. firstly, I'm going to mention their... How did the Phillies and Dale Murphy get into You'll this? You'll see. You'll see. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> You'll see. The Dale Murphy part probably won't come to the very end. But all anyway, right, all right. Um, so um, first, let's just mention the title of the second track, which is Ted Fucking Williams. Uh. And I don't know if you've heard the song before, but it's, nope. it's written from like the point of view of Ted Williams uh, lamenting that 
all these other players are getting all this praise and he's not getting any like why is why why are they not applauding me? I'm Ted fucking Williams. <laughs> well, who's who's not applauding Ted Williams? Yeah. That, well, apparently, according to this point of view of Ted Williams, nobody is. So, well, I, so they're saying he's overshadowed by the Gehrigs and the Ruths and stuff. And by, he should by, by the Willie Mays yeah. and the Duke Snyders. Okay. And the, okay. So there's also a song to express gratitude for Kurt Flood. Nice. Which is aptly titled "Gratitude for Kurt Flood." Mm-hmm. Just. <laughs> Kind of not surprising that like uh, a band started by a guy from like the Pacific Northwest is supporting the labor rights, but mm-hmm. um, so the album was received well by critics for the most part. Uh, Ten out of eleven reviews I read were positive, and one was pretty much just some guy that seemed mad that they <laughs> cared about the lyrics a lot, <laughs> which like. I'll get to that soon. That's kind of dumb. Anyway, so it was a, it's a baseball themed band. You gotta think you'd go with lyrics before exactly before substance. Exactly, it's storytelling. Yeah. So now magazine wrote, "quote The insightful tunes are cleverly composed with a sharp sense of wit and a comprehensive knowledge of the game." So there's a song on there called "The Closer," which mm-hmm. is the last song on the album, mm-hmm. and uh, it obviously understands the roles of players and like the type of perspective that they would have because. The course, or the course is, uh, if you're only in it for a little while, you better make it count. If you can't stand the heat, you've got to get out. So, Ooh. Um, powerful. Yes. Chills, deep, bro. Deep, yeah. <laughs> uh, all music said, quote, far from being a throwaway side project, this unique album is as refreshing as a gapper to right center, providing, of course, it's your team up at the plate. So if you like it, yeah, you're going to fucking... You're going to dig it. You're hitting a double with this one. Yeah, nice. yeah which is true. Uh, pouring through Hardball's rich history with the exhaustiveness of true geeks, but the wit and empathy of born songwriters, Wynn and McAfee repeatedly managed to draw effortless metaphorical lines between baseball and life. And that was written by Pitchfork. Uh, the ultimate authority. Yes. Uh there's a song long before my time where the pitcher is kind of debating retirement from the game and referencing Warren Spawn and other long tenured players that like kind of implore him to like keep pitching. Are you as distracted by my dog as I am? Yeah, everything is yeah. distracting, but it's all yeah. right. Um, <laughs> as his dog is freaking out in the backyard. Yes. Yeah, so uh, anyway, but the one negative I re- uh, review I read from Mojo, this is the guy, All right. uh, claimed, quote, this sort of works, but clearly their obsession lies with the lyrics. Which is just like we were saying before, like if it's storytelling about well, that's baseball, just, then... That's just somebody that doesn't get it, right? They're just like someone, they're like, oh, we're going to write an album about baseball, and this guy's like, how dare they write the words? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's like, I, I, it's also, if you don't like baseball, like, why would you enjoy that, though? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, well, exactly. Like if you're if you're as enamored with baseball as we are, you're gonna you're gonna get you're gonna, something. Yeah, out you're of gonna it. be attracted to those stories, and and you know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, okay, so I was attracted to one particular story on the first album, and that's what I'm gonna tell you right now. Psych. It's another dude from the 1890s. Fuck. Uh, October 13th, 1867. See, I was like, are we just going to talk about this band for like an hour? (laughs) All right. Edward James Delahanty was born in Cleveland, Ohio to Bridget and James. 
They were Irish immigrants who had immigrated two years earlier. Mm-hmm. Ed was their second child born and the first to survive infancy. All right. Those were tough times. Back yeah, then. so there's that 1800s term that we've heard before in these episodes, surviving child. Um, yep. So to support... Sorry, what's his name again? Your, your curveball threw me off. Edward James Delahanty. All right. To support his family, James Delahanty took a variety of blue-collar jobs in Cleveland while his wife converted the family's spacious Phelps Street home into a boarding house. The eldest and most talented of five eventual Major League brothers, Ed, as a young boy, managed to steer clear of the crowded family home by playing a variety of sports, but especially baseball in the neighborhood's vacant lots. Okay, so wait. He was the first surviving child, yes. but then there was like four more after. Him. Yeah. So they just, they kept going. They're like, we got one. We're going to. Yeah. And they eventually all made the major leagues. <laughs> they, so they were like, oh, for three. And then they were five for five. Yeah. That's right. right. Yeah. You got to swing your way out of the slump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing metaphor. Uh. Uh, Ed's impressive hitting caught the eye of local scouts who recruited him to play for the Cleveland Shamrocks, a semi-pro club. His success there led to a $50 per month contract with Mansfield of the Ohio State League, where Delahanty spent the 1887 season batting 351 with 90 runs scored in 83 games. All right. Pretty good. He's very good. Yep. After appearing in 21 games and posting a 412 batting average for Wheeling, West Virginia, of the Tri-State League in 1888, Delahanty's contract was picked up by the Philadelphia Phillies of the National League for approximately $2,000. A strapping 6-foot-1 tall and 170 pounds, Delahanty was not an instant success in the majors as opposing pitchers took advantage of the youngster's free-swinging approach at the plate, holding him to a 228 batting average. He improved to 293 in 1889, then jumped to the jumped to Cleveland of the Players League in 1890, where he batted 296 in 115 games. Yeah, so he, yeah, he's he's doing it. I just love that like six one, like 170 back then was like big, a big dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. that was like we're we're so we're so like. <laughs> Used to just like guys are six three two twenty. You're bigger than that. Oh, I'm bigger than that. Yeah. yeah, but I'm but still like I don't I don't know I don't even think about myself as a big guy. But, but you're not. You look at no, the 18- Sean. I think you I, you could beat the shit out of that guy. <laughs> Probably. Well, I, they were tougher people back then. You know, and this guy was drunk a lot. So yeah. No, uh, I just I just love I just because I just know from uh, looking at 1890s rosters, there's so many just like. Five nine one forty five nine one fifty, and you'd like how many guys in the major leagues are that like nowadays? Like a handful. Yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah. So he went to the players' league in eighteen ninety. You can hear more about the failed players' league in the old Hoss Radburn episode yeah. in our archives. Uh, Delahanty returned to Philadelphia after the failure of the players' league, struggling to a two forty three average, though he scored ninety two runs and drove in another eighty six eighth best in the circuit after more than three years in the major leagues he had failed to live up to his potential so it's i mean he's not like doing too bad but it's probably like comparable to like a guerrero situation last year where he didn't have like a terrible year per se but because of expectations were high his expectations were really high so uh, he's not living up to them after the first three years in the majors. Yeah. So Delahanty rededicated himself to his profession in the off season, working out every day and reporting to camp in 1892 in the best shape of his life. 
He responded with Even his... Even back then they said that, eh? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Every year, 40 years old, best shape ever. <laughs> well, colloquialism has lived forever, Sean. He responded with his finest season to date, batting 306 while leading the league in triples with 21 and slugging percentage of 495. During one game that season, St. Louis infielder George Pinckney charged toward home plate, expecting Delahanty to bunt. Delahanty swung and hit a ball that, quote, appeared to have been shot from a cannon, breaking Pinckney's ankle. Fuck. (laughs) Heavy. Yeah, that would suck, eh? So wait, Pinckney was trying to score? No, Pinckney was the infielder trying to charge the bunt. Oh, so he he, faked him out. And then, yeah, yeah, okay. Wow. That, that, uh... That, yeah, that's rough. Yeah. He, oh, he faked the bunt. So he faked the bunt, then the third baseman oh, ran my. in, and then he smashed one at his face, or at his ankle. ankle. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, power. Uh, the same year, Delahanty was victim uh, behind one of, quote, the most shameful home runs of all time, according to authors Bruce Nash and Alan Zulo, when Delahanty's, Delahanty's Phillies, Phillies hat, hosted the Chicago White Stockings at Philadelphia's Huntington Street Grounds in July. Cap Anson hit a fly ball to center field. And I'm just going to like mention fun fact about Cap Anson. If you don't know about Cap Anson, he was so good back in these days that when he got traded to Cleveland, they changed the name of the team to his name. So What? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> The, the Cleveland the Cleveland Caps, Caps. Cleveland uh, oh sorry that's Cap Anson sorry that's later on Nap Lejoie Na- when Nap Lejoie oh, got Nap traded Lejoie. to Cleveland okay. yeah, yeah, he yeah. was named to the, the Naps. Cleveland Naps. yes okay yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah Cap Anson hit a fly ball to center field the ball hit a pole and landed right in the doghouse there was a literal doghouse no the doghouse was where they kept the numbers for the hand operated scoreboard okay oh. So it went in there and reaching over the doghouse and then tried crawling into it. He got stuck, I guess, between all the, the wood, like the wooden panels. And by the time teammate Sam Thompson had freed Delahanty from the area, Anson had crossed home plate. Well, all, all of that sounds like it takes somebody like 25 seconds to round the bases. Like all yeah. of that sounds like it. Well, I guess this was like, this much was, longer. This was the 1890s. So yeah. I guess it's like before the ground rules. Because no, there were, were well, there were so many things in the like I. I don't yeah there's a one thing i will mention from a podcast coming up that there is literally a man that had a racetrack in center field in, in the national league so. okay that sounds great <laughs> but yeah no so it was like before they they had so many things on the field it well was and there was there was so much stuff in play at this time too like we talk about it in other episodes i mean they're experimenting with pitch delivery rules like not being allowed to deliver from over your shoulder or even even one year there was uh, they made it so that you had to, to get four strikes to get a batter out or even like the the member of the uh, the the strike zone like yeah. the high or yeah. low pitch like the batter could call for a high or low pitch and if the yeah. pitcher didn't comply it was a ball even if it was over the plate yeah it, this this podcast should literally just be called sean and ed's find out that 1800s baseball was insane yeah <laughs> it's just, that's just the theme of we're just we're just like what the fuck this happened they were really working the kinks out back yeah. Back. Yeah. Did, did yeah. they did they have padding on the walls back no then? no, no. they might not even pallets. had walls in yeah. some places yeah. well that's a thing right yeah. like the outfield some outfields were like 600 feet some outfields were like 300 it was just 
didn't make any sense. Okay, so Ed's performance that season was one that drew praise from Sporting Life, which credited Delahanty for his, quote, hard and timely batting. But the slugger was just getting started. A pole hitter who kept opposing defenses honest by occasionally hitting to the opposite field, Delahanty once confided to a reporter that he often liked to swing at the first pitch because a pitcher with good control usually tried to, quote, do his business with the first offering. He said that to a reporter? Yes. Publicly? Yes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good... good <laughs> Way to give away your approach. You think, yeah. <laughs> maybe, it was, maybe it was smart. Maybe he was doing it on purpose, but he probably swung and missed at like four first strikes. <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless, Delahanty could be a patient hitter too, as evidenced by his ranking among the league's top ten in walks four times. When outfielders, fearing the legendary slugger's power, played him deeper, Delahanty responded by place hitting the ball over the infielder's heads. Delahanty's ability to adjust his hitting approach to confound opposing defenses made him, in the estimation of Cincinnati Reds pitcher Red Errett, quote, the hardest man in the league for pitchers to puzzle. Longtime catcher Jack O'Connor concurred Noting, quote, if Dell had a weakness at the bat, I could never discover it. So, so he's just an all-around good hitter. He can hit for power. He can place yeah. the ball. He can. He's. He's. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a hitting coach's wet dream. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There we go. Uh, Delahanty left an impression in the field as well, where he developed into one of the game's finest outfielders. Dell found his home in the outfield in 1892 after spending his first years in the majors as a subpar infielder. He even displayed enough range to merit the occasional start in center field. At his accustomed position, left field, Delahanty ranked among the league's best. He became known for his strong arm, which he used to collect 238 career assists, and his hustling style of play, which helped him to reach balls lesser outfielders allowed to drop in for base hits. Ed showed a similar aggressiveness on the base paths. He would swipe 455 career bases, including a league-best 58 in 1898. That's pretty good. Yeah. 50, yeah. No, that's, uh, so, all, so he's got wheels. Yeah. He ain't slow. Yeah. So he's got people good steal room. bases like way more frequently back then. It yes. was it was even thirty years ago, but they and just the percentages were were way out of whack too because they would try right. like eighty or ninety times. And mm-hmm. like, well, we got 50, <laughs> 50 stolen bases, but you're like, but you got caught yeah. like almost the same amount that you did it. So what was the point of that? But <laughs> um, now, yeah, they used to they used to go hard on that. It was just like you got on base and you. Yeah, nowadays everyone yeah. just sits back and waits for dingers, but it kind of makes sense. Yeah. But <laughs> mm-hmm. So from 1892 to 1901, Delahanty anchored a powerful Philadelphia lineup that featured the likes of Billy Hamilton, Sam Thompson, Nap LeJoie, there you go, and Elmer Flick. During that span, he led the National League in a major offensive category 24 times. 24 times in nine years. Yeah. It's pretty fucking good. This is good. Huge. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, continue. continue. Continue? Yeah. yeah. Okay. In 1899, he became the first player in baseball history to bat better than 403 times. Holy shit. Yeah. When he led the league with a 410 mark. Among his league leading 238 hits he collected that season were a career high 55 doubles. He also captured two home run titles during the decade, 
blasting 19 round trippers in 1893 and 13 in 1896, which is like pretty fucking impressive. Cause like, isn't it like, it was a pretty big deal for Babe Ruth to hit like 19 and what, like 1919 yeah, so or whatever was, year that was. He was kind of a power hitter before power hitters. Yeah. Like even getting into, yeah, getting into double digits back then was a, was a big deal. Mm-hmm. That season, he became just the second player in history to hit four home runs in a single game, turning the trick on July 13th against the Chicago Colts. Two of the four homers were inside the park. Three years later, on May 13th, 1899, Delahanty hit four doubles in a single game, making him the only player to achieve both feats. So, so he's the only player with four doubles and four home runs in a game? Yeah. Not the same game, obviously. No, 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 but no, like, but, yeah. but different game. That That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I, I think I know most of the four home run guys, but I have no idea mm-hmm. who's had four doubles in a game. Yeah. Which brings us back to the first verse of the Baseball Project's homage to Big Ed Delahanty, where the band plays tribute to the feat. Sometimes hungover, he might lose a pop fly in the glare of the Washington sun. And yes, he swung at bad pitches and let the Irish in him sharpen up and boozy blowed his tongue. <laughs> Nights on the road, he led a bachelor's life with the bright short blaze of a shooting star. But he soaked some homers, yeah, four in one game when the ball was dead and the fence is far. That's sick. Yeah. So the lyrics imply that he obviously had some power, but also maybe had somewhat of a drinking problem. Yeah. As, as most people did back then. Yes, foreshadowing. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, blessed with the ability to hit for average and power, exceptional range in the field, a strong arm, and excellent speed, Delahanty was a five-tool player long before the term came into use. Arguably the game's greatest position player of the 1890s, Charles Radburn, probably the best pitcher, mm-hmm. Delahanty nonetheless failed to win a pennant with the Philadelphia Phillies who often found themselves, in spite of their offense, hampered by injuries and short on pitching. While the club struggled, Philadelphia owner John Rogers also managed to suppress the salaries of his top stars. By the beginning of the 20th century, Delahanty earned only $3,000 per year, only a slight increase over the pay he had received when he entered the major leagues over a decade earlier. Nearing 34 years of age at the conclusion of the 1901 campaign, in which he batted 354 with 108 RBI for the Phillies, Delahanty decided to join many of his teammates in seeking higher pay and better treatment with the rival American League. Ah, he's leaving the National he's, League. He's splitting. He's, yeah, so, fair enough. Yeah, so during the final two months of the 1901 season, reports circulated that Delahanty had become an agent for the upstart league. Selling his fellow players on the merits of the new circuit, Delahanty's success can be measured by the number of players for the 1901 Phillies who donned uniforms for the American League the following season. A total of nine players, including Elmer Flick, Red Donahue, Ed McFarland, Monty Cross, Harry Wolverton, Al Orth, and Delahanty himself, who signed a $4,000 contract with the Washington Senators including a $1,000 signing bonus. Nice. Yeah. So he's getting a raise, and he's bringing his friends with him. Yeah. He's living the life. Yeah, Harry Wolverton. Yeah. Great <laughs> names, eh? Yeah. Did I get that right? Harry Wolverton? Yeah, Harry Wolverton and Al Orff. <laughs> Al Orff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Delahanty was named captain of his new club and joined friend Jimmy Ryan in the outfield. As a result of a judge ruling... 
any players from the Phillies were forbidden from playing in the state of Pennsylvania. So they couldn't go to, or they couldn't play in Pennsylvania. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Thus preventing Delahanty and his fellow Philadelphia jumpers from playing against the athletics. What? The Philadelphia Athletics were the American League in Philadelphia. So oh, when he, yeah, yeah, when okay. Washington went to play Philadelphia, oh, they all nine of those guys couldn't go. That's well, oh, I didn't even think about that at the yeah. time. I was just like, oh yeah, well, Philly's in the NL, and I'm like, oh no, not bad. Oh mm-hmm. wow. To circumvent the court order, Dell and the other jumpers would typically get off the Philadelphia train in Delaware and head to the team's next destination. Oh, so they wouldn't even try. They were yeah. just legit. <laughs> yeah, they just wouldn't play in Pennsylvania. They'd just be like, fuck it, we're going to the next place. And was that just for the year, or was that forever? Yeah, okay. It, I, I, it, it's for right in this moment, right now, in this story. All right. <laughs> so, Big Ed battled former Phillies teammate Nap LeJoie of the Cleveland Club, Cleveland Naps, for the batting crown in 1902. Though unofficial figures that season... Uh, though unofficial figures at season's end showed Lajoie with a 15-point lead, 387 to 372, the official statistics released two months later declared Delahanty champion by a seven-point margin, which would have made Big Ed the only player ever to win both an NL and AL batting title. Research in later years, however, uncovered that Lajoie actually bested Delahanty 378 to 376. Statistics were not well kept back no, then. That's what I'm guess, getting from this. I guess they just kept discovering new <laughs> new scorecards or whatever. Remember and, that game back in June? Yeah. Did you guys ever write that down? Yeah, yeah Delahanty went 0 for 4. Oh, fuck. We got to change the record. Yeah. <laughs> we should probably write this down regularly, not just when we feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> so by today's standards, Delahanty would have been declared champion anyway because LeJoie had only 381 players appearances okay so you wouldn't have had enough yeah. play appearances to qualify yeah so after the 1902 season Delahanty commented to a reporter quote i know i'm getting along in years and won't be able to last much longer in first class baseball therefore i'm going to get all the money there is in sight last year i was playing with the phillies for three thousand dollars this season the washington club gives me four thousand dollars and if i can get five thousand dollars no one can blame me for taking it. I don't think I don't think anyone's arguing. And if I can get six thousand dollars, <laughs> then my mom will love me. <laughs> and if I get seven, oh, you watch out! If I get seven, Mister. Uh, so, Ed is on top of the world, no? Yep. The baseball project continues into the chorus, imploring Big Ed, don't let them weigh you down. Big Ed. Don't let us weigh you down. And let me tell you that Ed would need no extra help being weighed down. Because despite his continued on-field success, by the end of the 1902 season, Delahanty's personal life was beginning to unravel as his wife Noreen became ill and Delahanty squandered the couple's financial resources by gambling on horses and binge drinking. That'll do it. That'll do it. (laughs) Looking to pay off his mounting debts, Delahanty signed a three-year contract with the New York Giants, reported at either six thousand or eight thousand dollars per season. <laughs> he's got. He's like, he Just said, wait till I get all the money. Yeah. I'm gonna drink and gamble it away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
the deal also included an advance on his salary for $4,000. However, the contract was never fulfilled. Prior to the 1903 season, the leagues agreed to honor each other's contracts with the result that Delahanty's deal with the Giants was declared void and the rights to his contract were returned to Washington. Even worse news for Delahanty, he was ordered to pay back the $4,000 advance he had already received. Since Delahanty's 1903 contract with Washington called for a salary of $4,500, of which $600 had already been advanced, the ruling effectively cost the already cash-strapped Delahanty $100 to play the 1903s season for the Senators. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he had to pay to play in 1903. Oh, that would, uh, would not work well. No, that would be pretty... Yeah, that would weigh on you pretty well. Heavy. At least he still has a job, though. Yeah. Still, I mean, it's breaking even for the year. Mm-hmm. So, for a man suddenly on the brink of personal and financial ruin, it was the worst possible outcome. A few days prior to the start of the 1903 season, Delahanty ended a lengthy holdout when Washington agreed to pay the $4,000 he owed to New York. But in return, $2,000 per year would be deducted from the slugger's salary in 1903 and 1904. Okay, so he's just negotiating to try to get himself out of the hole. Yeah. All right. Even after reporting, however, Delahanty continued to seek opportunities to jump from the Senators, including a dalliance with Denver of the Western League, which never came to fruition. So, <laughs> so he's got all these plans that he's trying to get out, and none of them are working out for him. So. Well, it sounds like everything's working out fine for him, but he's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> he isn't, like, thanking the Senators for helping him. Yeah. But... Uh, upon his return to the Senators, Dell was out of shape and soon injured his back and ankle. Washington manager Tom Loftus sent him to a health spa in Michigan to shape up, and he rejoined the team on May 29th. Though he continued to bat well upon his return to the lineup, posting a 333 average and 156 at-bats, Delahanty feuded with Loftus, who ordered him to play right field, while Dell adamantly insisted that he only played left field. Amidst the turmoil, Delahanty's drinking again increased and his behavior became more erratic. He started giving away precious keepsakes, including his gold watch, to teammates. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, and it was even rumored that he'd once attempted suicide by turning on the gas in his room in Washington. <laughs> yeah. Is that like a gas stove, or would they just have a gas valve in case you wanted to kill yourself? I, I, ima- <laughs> I imagine it was a stove. But <laughs> it's just a, we built this into your room, and <laughs> use it as you it may. It was so common there. <laughs> use it as you may. Times are tough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Prior to embarking on a lengthy road trip with the Senators on June 17th, Delahanty took out a life insurance policy on himself, naming his daughter Florence as the beneficiary. On June 25th, Delahanty played, his, played the last game of his career in Cleveland when the following morning newspapers reported that the NL president, Harry Pulliam, had decided to violate the nascent peace agreement by allowing contract-jumping shortstop George Davis to play for the Giants. Ah. Delahanty presumably saw his opportunity to finally join the New York club. He abandoned the Senators that morning and went on a drinking binge, which left him angry, disoriented, and in no condition to play. (laughs) 
I mean, this guy has serious I built problems. you up there like he was getting it together, yeah. and then bam. I right just love I love the logic of just like, well, that guy can do it now, so I'm gonna go drink about it and figure this out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay, Dell accompanied the senators to their next stop in Detroit, where his mother and two brothers were summoned to help straighten him out. He continued to drink heavily, however and again abandoned the team on July 2nd. By this time, he knew he would be unable to jump to the Giants as a court order issued the previous day prohibited Davis from playing in New York. Delahanty nonetheless boarded a train to New York that afternoon, but perhaps tellingly left his belongings in his Detroit hotel room. Oh, no, no. Del misbehaved on the train, smoking when he was not supposed to, drinking to excess and accidentally breaking the glass in front of the emergency tool cabinet. The conductor said Delahanty was brandishing a straight razor and threatening passengers after he consumed five whiskeys. That'll do it. Uh, The Washington Post wrote a 1992 story about Ed Delahanty and said, uh, quote, he had angered his fellow passengers by smoking a cigar in his sleeper compartment and then smashing a glass case containing a fire axe. The New York Times wrote, quote, In the sleeper on the Michigan Central train on the way down from Detroit, Delahanty had five drinks of whiskey, says Conductor Cole, and became so obstreperous that he had to put him off the train at Bridgeburg at the Canadian end of the bridge. Cole says Delahanty had an open razor and was terrifying the other sleepers. <laughs> The 1992 story continued, saying the last straw was when he reached into another berth and tried to pull out a female passenger by her ankles. Okay. Finally, he fell asleep. When the train made a scheduled stop in Bridgeburg, which is now Fort Erie, Ontario, Dell became disoriented and tried to enter an already occupied berth. The commotion seemed to confuse him more, and he had to be subdued by three men. The conductor, John Cole, had understandably had enough of him for the evening and ordered Dell off the train. Quote, he was warned not to make more trouble, especially since he was still in Canada. And Dell said, I don't care whether I'm in Canada or dead. Oh, fuck. That's not what I thought he were going to say. No, <laughs> I don't care. Is it Canada or the United States? Yeah, he, well, you have to remember, he's like at least five whiskeys in. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care if I ain't Canada or dead. <laughs> Just. So this is all recounted in the second verse. Quote, uh-huh. in July 1903, he was hitting 333. For him, that was just a little bit under par. On the second, he jumped the team and jumped a train from Detroit to New York, went straight for the dining car. He was boozing it up good, they say, making trouble, cursing, shouting, delahanting in the bar. At Fort Erie, <laughs> Ontario, he was bumped from the train, wandered out on the bridge, but he didn't get too far. Uh-huh. So the Please tell me he like just like becomes a mountie or something. <laughs> just walks away from it all and Let's find out. <laughs> the train crossed the International Railway Bridge over the Niagara River into Buffalo. In the darkness, Big Ed walked out onto the 3,600-foot-long bridge and was standing still at its edge, staring down into the water, when he was eventually accosted by a night watchman, Sam Kingston, who was on the lookout for smugglers. Fucking smugglers. Smugglers. (laughs) A scuffle ensued with Kingston dragging Delahanty back to the middle of the wide bridge, but Kingston fell down and Delahanty got away. (laughs) 
New York Times continued, quote, after the train had disappeared across the bridge, Delahanty started to walk across, which is against the rules. The night watchman attempted to stop him, but Delahanty pushed the man to one side. The draw of the bridge had been opened for a boat, and the player plunged into the dark waters of the Niagara. Jesus. So he's running away from the night watchman, didn't realize, I guess, that the, the... It's implied that he didn't realize that the drawbridge was open, and he just ran right off the bridge and fell into the Niagara River. Well, it, well at least it's summer. Yeah. I guess. I guess. Did that help? <laughs> Kingston, who claimed it was too dark to see what happened, Dell either jumped or drunkenly stumbled off the edge of the bridge, falling 25 feet into the 40-foot deep Niagara. And the area where this bridge is, it's like a bottleneck. Yeah. So uh, the flow is like often dangerously swift at this area, so it would have just taken them. And this is upstream from Horseshoe Falls. And this is so, at night too, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, so yes. Yeah, that doesn't help. Uh, baseball Project carries on in their third verse recounting the death of Ed Delahanty. Yeah, yeah, he's dead. The night watchman said he'd seen a man, ended up wearing his bowler hat. He'd heard a splash, but he didn't see him fall. What good's it do to question death when it makes a bad call? But I don't think he'd killed himself. I think some strange notion drew him to Niagara Falls. Across the curve of day and night, like the perfect arch of a high fly ball. Jesus, this sounds like a good song that we probably can't afford to put on this. No, podcast. we don't. We cannot afford the rights for this song, but, uh, but we can talk about it. Yeah, uh, Delahanty's body was found on July 9th, a week after being removed from the train at Fort Erie. His obituary in the Times said, "The body of Edward Delahanty." the right fielder of the Washington baseball team of the American League who fell from the International Bridge last Thursday night was taken from the river at the Lower Niagara Gorge today. Relatives of Delahanty arrived here this afternoon and positively identified the body as that of the missing baseball player. The body of a th woman 35 years old was also recovered at Lewiston today. Jeez. It has not been identified. It was Dale Murphy. Delahanty's <laughs> body was mangled. One leg was torn off, presumably by the propeller of the Maid of the Mist. Oh, fuck. Near whose landing the body was found. The body will be shipped to Washington tonight. Delahanty's effects have been sent to his wife by the Pullman people. Ugh. So I don't really understand why they just threw, like, the fact that they found a 35-year-old woman's body in the middle <laughs> well, of Ed Delahanty's <laughs> obituary. But anyway, they did for Unrelated, some Unrelated, completely, right? Yes. Who's the, who's the lady? No, no one knows. It's just there in the middle of Delahanty's obituary for some reason. <laughs> I gotta find out. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming, yeah, Niagara Falls is probably a fairly, uh, yeah, well-known place for... For people either being swept away or killing themselves, so mm. so you th just think on Fridays they just clean out the dead bodies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess. I feel I like Whoever's how the there is there. Yeah, <laughs> they go with the net, pick everything up. <laughs> I like how the reporting was like so much more blunt back then. They're just like his body was mangled and found by the maid of the mist landing. <laughs> just yeah. absolutely no, no euphemisms. His yeah. legs were gone. Yeah. <laughs> Just stumps. There was no blood anymore. <laughs> so his widow eventually won a court judgment against the railroad for depositing Delahanty so near to the bridge in his condition. Okay. Uh, yeah. So Delahanty entered the Hall of Fame in 1945 by the Veterans Committee. He had a 
2,596 career hits, 101 home runs, 1,464 RBIs, and 455 stolen bases, as we mentioned. Yep. Uh, and unfortunately, he's remembered for walking off a bridge and not being one of the greatest players of all time. His like career batting average is so. Fifth how of old all was time. he when he died? Uh. 30 like 29 or 29 something? or no yeah. he would have been at least 34 yeah 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 in, what year was he born 1867 yeah 1867 so, so like 30 34 35 37 okay yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah so he still probably had a few more years left like well he, he like i just love that that he just like they're like oh you can play for the giants like oh well actually you can't he's like, i'm getting on a train anyways yeah. and then i'm gonna get obliterated and like yeah it's just sad at first i thought he was gonna Kill himself. So uh mm-hmm. made me feel a little bit better. Yeah. What did, what did you think was gonna happen, JP? Um, well I thought there was gonna be a happy ending, of course, like all of your stories. <laughs> <laughs> you know, every every time you start a story I, I press play on one of your podcasts and I'm like, This is gonna be a fun baseball story. I'm in a good mood, and then I usually end up wanting to hug my family. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. It gets dark, but yeah. gets we dark. can bring this one back around to like some happy stuff because I want to like talk about but, some of the other songs eventually. But I, I, is uh, is Delahanty the only baseball player to have fallen in the to have been found in Niagara Falls? I feel like I might have heard the story before. Is there anybody else? I'm, I'm not that I can think. Not of. that I can think of. I, but I think I may have heard the story not as well as you told it. Not in such <laughs> detail, but. <I> <laughs> Not in such detail, no. But I think I remember hearing about a guy falling into Niagara Falls. Mm, well, he fell no. into the river and went. I was going to say creek. Well, that he fell that, in the river and went right creek. over the falls. And yeah, no, it's. A, I mean, I'm just like thinking about all the times, like at that border crossing or whatever, too. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's yeah, it's probably not a good place to to go in there. And I just also, it's just, it just sounds like like a fucking like he, he kind of did. It. I don't want to say he did it to himself, but like he, he like, kind of did it to he himself. Did it to, he made a lot of poor choices in those last couple yeah. weeks, yeah. especially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of sad. That last bit of the story. There. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, okay, yeah. to to bring it back around to like a more of a positive note to like end the episode. Um, there are like some songs on the first album by the Baseball Project that yep. like relate uh, back to some of our older episodes. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it's on the second album. Uh, there's a song, Here Lies Carl Mays, mm-hmm. which is, like, written from the perspective of, like, an apology of Carl Mays, who was the guy who threw the pitch that hit Ray Chapman and eventually killed him, which yeah. is our third yeah. episode. Yeah. And there's some, like, facts that I don't know how I didn't pick these up in the episode, but yeah. um, it mentions that uh, Ray Chapman's wife supposedly uh, committed suicide in, two, in 1928. Oh. <laughs> and uh, their daughter also uh, eerily died in 1929. This is your attempt uh, to make it happier? It will eventually <laughs> get there. And then, uh, <laughs> and then the ball that uh, was used, I guess, was, like, purchased or, like, eventually, like, acquired by some kids and it was put into play in a game and it took a bad hop and hit a kid in the eye. <laughs> Cursed balls. Cursed huh? balls. So anyway, okay, let's get to like some happier stuff. There's a song called Buckner's Bolero, which yeah. is just uh discusses kind of uh how Bill Buckner is not really the scapegoat of the eighty six Red Sox. And Yeah, well people you know, forget that uh uh 
Uh, oh, never mind. I got it. I got that mixed up. You were mixing up Bartman. Edit that out of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah was that? that'll be there. But like, for example, like it wasn't about, all his fault. No, yeah. they talk about if like the Red Sox had have had like a better four starter who didn't like serve up a big fat slider to Gary Carter. Yeah, you know, um, and like uh, Tom Seaver not pitching and Jim Rice not taking extra base. Blah blah. I digress. Uh, and then another song that like relates back to your favorite episode about uh-huh. the the litigation of like the netting in the baseball, in the rule, baseball rule yeah uh, there's a song called look out mom uh-huh which goes look oh. out mom look out mom i don't want you to be another foul ball fatality <laughs> you know great song are those the actual lyrics yes That's amazing yes no, I, I remember sure, hearing... Sure, it sounds better in the song. Oh, yeah. it sounds way better in the song. I remember hearing yeah. about the baseball project and reading about it at one point, and, and probably one of those things I, like, checked out for a week and then totally forgot about. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, like, fun songs. There's, like, songs about nicknames, like the panda and the freak, like about Sandoval and Lincecum. Nice. And Ichiro goes to the moon. <laughs> and don't call them Twinkies, which is just like an awesome account of like fandom if you're a Minnesota Twins fan. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then for UJP, there's a great song uh, called They Are the Oakland A's. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, one of their verses, despite no good reason, they keep going to the postseason. So, uh, <laughs> that, that is beautiful. You know, and so there's like, they have these songs that like capture baseball fandom so perfectly, like the baseball card song, you know, like flipping through your cards and the song called Box Scores, or it's just like talking about, you know, you can get the whole story of the game and it's like meditation to like go over these box scores and understand the game. And like, you know, it's just... I don't know. I got super into this. Obviously, you sound over, super like, the first week. Yeah, <laughs> you sound super. So it's the the baseball project is like yeah, it sounds like everything. So if you're li- if you're from the baseball project and you're listening to this, call us. Give us permission to use your songs in this episode. But yeah. uh, but that definitely sounds. The, everybody should check it out. Are the baseball projects still active? This is those 2007. You said. Uh, well, Originally. they had an album in 2014, so I imagine they're like reasonably still active. I hope they are okay. anyway, because they're really well, good. So yeah. well, they should just keep going and never stop. Yeah. Well, th- well, thank you, Baseball Project, for the for the story. For mm-hmm. uh, we, we may not have known otherwise. Yes. All well, because you wrote some well. sick lyrics about it. Whoever the fuck said otherwise. Yeah, suck it, Mojo. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. So uh, yeah. Uh, thanks, JP. Thanks for being thanks on for the coming. show, man. Yeah, it's great no, to have you. thank you, guys. That was fun. Yeah, so follow JP on Twitter at JP underscore SRB, and uh, follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball, under, uh, Instagram at, Baseball. at Doing Whoa. underscore Baseball. Doing underscore Baseball, yeah. And if you're listening to this on whatever platform, give us a review. Uh, tune in next time. We try to do these every two Wednesdays or every other Wednesday, I guess it would be. So. Thanks, JP, and uh, I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we were doing some baseball. All right. Bye. A little P.S. Dale Murphy. Yeah, P.S. Dale Murphy. Forgot about that. They have a song called I Want to See Dale Murphy in the Hall of Fame. That can be a debate for another time. Wow. Wow. How have I not heard this? You should check it out, buddy. (laughs) Okay, bye. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.